forever. Dog. My dad's favorite quote was, it was the um, uh, Richard Burton quote to a young Welsh actor. The young actor scared to death of this, this icon, this booming voice. I go, how do you do the acting? And he took pity on him, I think, and said, it's easy, son. What you do is you give the other actor your whole heart. And if he doesn't give it you back, you kick the shit out of him. And I, I believe that's the truth. And it's not about selfishness. It's about, it, it, it's about the play is the thing. The doing of the play is the thing. Not the play is the thing. The play, the action play is the thing. All the intelligence, all the intellect that you can have, all the study you have, all the ideas you have, all the whimsy that comes to mind, which comes from having done your bloody homework and actually caring about what you're doing, which is not that hard. It's literally about you have to find a way to put your whole heart into it. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or one episode of Hot in Cleveland with the late, great Betty White. Our guest is Mark Shepard, Supernatural, Battlestar Galactica, In the Name of the Father, Firefly, the list goes on. Terrific British actor who actually considers himself more of an American actor, and we're going to talk about that distinction in the interview. I first noticed Mark Shepard. I probably saw him. I definitely saw him in The Name of the Father, in In the Name of the Father, uh, in the 90s. He popped off the screen at me when I was watching Firefly the year after it got canceled, because I have my finger on the pulse, as Badger, uh, as sort of an intergalactic crime lord, uh, and he had this incredible ability to play high and low status within seconds of each other. He can be very aggressive and and sort of scary, and then he can immediately kind of go back on his heels, uh, which is really fun and dynamic, and he earns each little turn. Interesting guy. Also um, has a ton of tattoos. Gorgeous work. Big, bright, colorful sleeve. I have a couple on the inside of my arms. But, um, you know, heads up, young actors, it will add a little time onto your call time. If your call time was going to be 7 a.m., it will probably be closer to 6.30 or 6.15 so they can cover up your tattoos. Unless, of course, you're just wearing lawn sleeves. No one ever asks me to take my shirt off on camera. I can count on one hand the number of times it's happened. Uh, so it's not a huge issue. But if you're the kind of actor who is shirtless a lot, consider carefully before you get a tattoo. Make sure it really means something to you. Mark Shepard and I also share a birthday. We're going to talk about that and the personality traits related to that. It's a huge, sprawling conversation with, with a, a British actor who is an American actor who lives here in these United States. Please welcome Mark Shepard. Mark Shepard, thank you so much for doing this. How you doing, sir? I'm I'm very well. I'm I'm very well. I want to. We're gonna kind of bounce around. Um, I have a lot of questions. Uh, we're not necessarily gonna go in order, but um, I want to talk about what is probably one of your biggest credits, and it's probably the one that you're stopped on the street for the most. I want to talk about Crowley on on Supernatural, who is such. He's just so goddamn charming for a demon. It's almost like 
like Milton's idea of Satan almost. He's like incredibly charismatic. And was that on the page? Is that Mark? Who, who, what makes him so goddamn appealing? Well, the fascinating thing is Crowley, as we know Crowley, I guess. I mean, I started at the end of season five, which was technically the end of the show. I mean, they'd written the apocalypse. Right. Eric, <laughs> Eric Kripke. <clears throat> right. Not your Kripke, but my Kripke. Understood. Understood. Um, <clears throat> had ended the show. I mean, he literally had an apocalypse and he was done. So he was getting to the stage of like, oh, yeah, well, you can come in on the last, you know, there's, there's 10 episodes less of, left of the show. And uh, that's kind of it. And CW, of course, were like, no, 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 no. We need to keep this going for another 10 years or whatever it was eventually. Um, another seven. Yeah. No, 10 more. So this was in season five. 15, 15 yeah. seasons. Oh, it's insane. It's 15 seasons. The only show that still exists out of the original WB shows. So it went from WB. Oh, you're right. Star, yeah. Stayed on, which was crazy. But um, so who wrote my character was uh, uh, was Ben Edlund, who's one of my favorite people on the planet. He created now Ben Edlund is the tick, right? Yes, he's my. He's, yeah, absolutely. So that was his school project, I think, at the time. Ben is Ben is wonderful. Um, him and Jenny Klein, two very very talented writers, and and what it did, I know it's a long story, but not many people know that that I was friends with Kim Manners, who was the original showrunner of the show. And I used to go up to Canada, and we, as we used to go up to Canada all the time and go do TV shows, um, he would sort of hold court beautifully at uh, at uh, at the hotel up there, which was originally the Meridian, and then became whatever it became afterwards. We we spent years in the, that bar in the Girard, and I don't drink. It's so not the to, it's not it's not the Sutton Place. Yes, the Sutton Place it used to be the, the Meridian when it first started. So, so in the, the Sutton Place is where every Vancouver where they put you up in Vancouver. And right. the, the, the bar is always just this the, the fascinating. Is the name of the bar, right. There's some great right. stories. Okay. It, it, some oh, my mates. God, I had drinks with Matthew Broderick there. I have no business having drinks with Matthew Broderick <laughs> unless I'm in Vancouver. Absolutely. So, but the thing was, is Kim used to hold court at a particular table. Kim was the, uh, was a, a, a child actor. I think he was on 77 Sunset Strip or something when he was, oh, his dad was, was also, a but he became a director on 21 Jump Street. So he was this sort of iconic TV guy. And he used to bring in all these directors to direct the show Supernatural that he was doing. He goes, ah, oh, you know, the boys are great. And we just used to spend hours together. I don't drink. So I'd hold a table for him because I'd be there drinking Pellegrino and whatever. And he'd bring his director in and we'd be ch talking for hours. And we just became really, really close friends. And he's like, you should come and do the show someday and you should do this. And it's like, I was like, yeah, it's great. I caught a bit of the first season. I really liked the boys. But I got busy and for some reason it never happened. And eventually... Uh, his brother was a producer who I'd worked with and I was talking to his brother and his brother told me unfortunately he was sick and he'd got cancer and he, and he uh, passed quite quickly from cancer and he was the original kick it in the ass guy and he, he, he formulated a lot of the tone of that show, the way the boys behaved, the way um, um, they learned so much from him and he was, he was just, he was, he was kind of one of those brilliant showrunners, one of those amazing showrunners and he, and he, he died. Uh, and I'd never done the show. And then suddenly Crowley comes up. So I got the giggles as, as an audition. It came up and I was like, I got to go in for this. So I went in and, sure. and read for it and it was mine. So not only was it Ben Edlund's insane, brilliant, bizarre, I mean, this is let's kill Hitler, the, uh, the, the French mistake episode he did. He's, he's a, just a beautiful writer. Absolutely yeah. batshit. Brilliant. 
Not Bashir Crazy Bashir, brilliant. But um, yeah. But he. Uh, so I went and did this, and it was this. It's just delicious. It was just a delicious thing to do, and, and to go round and you know to to give you the longest answer to a question I've ever given you, um, thus far. Um, I think there's two types of roles that are worth playing. I've always said this. There's the guy that sells them out before they leave the planet, which is Zachary Smith in Lost in Space. Right, and there's right. the last sane man in the universe, which is Eddie Albert in Green Acres. And <laughs> I think that Crowley owes a lot to Eddie Albert and Green Acres. And because uh, if they just do what he said, everything would be so much better. And they don't realize just how stupid they are. And, and and the fact that I know what's going to happen and it's always going to work out the way I want it to. And it's also based on David Warner in Time Bandits, which took me years to work out. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I totally see that. I evil. totally see that. There's a moment, you know, when Benson says, like, uh, oh, yes, turning peas into beans. And he goes, oh, Benson, you are so utterly devoid of any intelligence whatsoever, which is just the, the most beautiful watchword of a, of a supreme evil being but not evil. And I've always hated the idea of playing somebody as evil. I mean, you know, from, from Big Bang, your character yeah. as written is extraordinarily two-dimensional. It is yeah. a written two-dimensional character. <clears throat> and whatever charm is there and whatever absolute, you know, he's, he's the scorpion. He's going to sting you. If he ever gets an opportunity, if, if yeah. Kripke gets an opportunity, he is going to do what furthers his situation no matter what and that's we, yeah. we i think we come from the same approach which is we're not judging the character we're playing the character so you're playing the character and you're trying to like understand why this person acts the way they do and you know for me it was the you know, the I, I figured if he'd grown up with this speech impediment he was constantly kind of behind the eight ball and had to crawl his way out of that low status you know and and Crowley, well, Crowley's a demon and has to uh, has to deal with uh, the world around him accordingly and uh, fight both angels and humans to get shit done. But I love that idea that comes across in in Supernatural of of like Lucifer uh, hates humans, hates demons even more. Obviously, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like there's a whole psychology laid out there that makes perfect sense. Well, that it's it's. Whoever was at the helm, when Kripke Kripp was at the helm for the first five years, and it was very specific what he was doing. And then mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Gamble had to come in in season six right. and turn the ship around from a, from an apocalypse. It's like, show's ended, there's an yeah. apocalypse. Oh, good luck, start again. And, and she <laughs> did an incredible job. And that season six was, was some of the best standalone episodes that ever existed, some of the greatest writing, some of the wittiest stuff. And then she created, you know, I'm talking out of school, I think she's brilliant, but... Um, she, season seven just, you know, in retrospect, felt like would have been an incredible season 12, but it was not a great season seven. It was very serialized. And people were oh, still chasing, a, 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 I think they were chasing a monster of the week or it was different or it felt different. And she did a very brave, very, very courageous season, which I think if it had been season 12 would have been a massive sort of hit in the genre. And then she left after seven. And then Jeremy Carver, who's my current boss on Doom Patrol, came back and went, oh, right. um, well, this is easy. You just go back to Angels and Demons <laughs> and then create this incredible season. It was the, my favorite season of almost anything I've ever done, which was season eight of Supernatural, which, you know, starts with Angels and Demons and ends with Angels falling from, from heaven and me being injected with human blood and singing Bowie and 
being insane, you know. And we shot an episode, the final episode we shot in sequence because there was so much of it was so dense. And very rarely as an actor do you get to shoot television in sequence. There's about yeah, 30, ever. That's interesting. About 30 scenes that are in, a, in and out of a church and, you know, I'm tied to a chair, etc. And we just did this for three days. We just literally three days. And what was beautiful was, is, you know, everybody's, oh, you know, we're all families and all, all the shows we're ever on, we're all family. The truth of the matter right, is, right. is we were together a really, really long time. And everybody knew yeah. everybody and they just, you know, you wanted to get your buddies home on a weekend and, and they wanted you to succeed and they all wanted to do it right. And the crew made no noise for three days in between shots because we were busy. Wow. Which I thought was one of the greatest pieces of respect I've ever been paid by, by my friends. It was just magical. And it's, That's it's really I loved, lovely to hear. Yeah. It's, it's just, you get those, those moments, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like any family has its ups and downs and personality and this, that, and the other, but everybody loves everybody. We'll do conventions together and it's weird. It's, 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 the show is so much bigger than its, than its viewers were. I mean, you're talking about three, four million viewers and yet I can't walk down the street in any country in the world without. No, it's, it's a map. And the reason I, there's a misconception that that Barry Kripke is named for Eric Kripke. He's not. He's named for uh, Saul Kripke, who's a, a New York-based uh, philosophy professor. Um, but that's how uh, Eric Kripke came on my radar and how I started dabbling in, right. in that show and some of the other ones he's done. Um, and I've had... You're like my third guest from Supernatural. We've had, uh, we've had your colleague uh, Jim Beaver on. We've had Kurt Fuller on. Um, Two wonderful actors and, and perfect. Perfectly fitting. Gets, the they, they get incredible people on that show. They yeah. get incredible people to do incredible work. And and Beaver, I don't want to do the whole hour on, on Supernatural, but I but Beaver was struck by because he took the job and he's like, okay, it's about these two good looking guys who fight demons. I don't know how much range I'm going to have to get. But then he got this incredible. He got all this incredible stuff to do. He got this great arc. He got several death scenes. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. got he he loved working. He said it really pushed him as an actor. Did you find that? Uh, yeah, because the worst thing is in in British film and television and in film, you're usually dealing with a, a single premise writer. You're dealing with a writer that's either created something or is conspiring with you to do it. In television, you're, t you're dealing with teams of, of very talented writers, but they are definitely teams. And so every time I'm written, I'm written slightly different. And my mm -hmm. difficulty was always to make it still be me, regardless who, whoever thought. I mean, th at the beginning, they would write it very straight and I would find the humor in it and I would find the fun in it. And it, it got, that's what right. created the character. And then after a while, of course, they're writing it going, oh, this would be funny if Mark said this. And then you have to sort of navigate right, right, right. through that and go like, it's actually not funny, but I've got to work out how it's funny. Because the idea is- probably never tries to be funny. No. Yeah. He just amuses himself on occasion. So that's a very, Kripke's <laughs> very like that too. He'll say something just for the, the fact that he finds it amusing. That's true. It's, Actually, it's, he, he, it's, there, there is a lot of, uh, there's a, a striking amount of overlap between uh, that uh, physics professor and, uh, and that demon. You um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, about about your your background. You you have a background. Your father was an actor. He just passed a couple mm -hmm. years ago and um, uh, and with an incredible, incredible, diverse resume. 
of just all over the place. I, I, it was one of those things where I, I recognize him. I can point to a couple of things and then you start looking at the resume like, oh, that's right. He's in Murat Saad. That's right. Yeah. He's in Hawk the Slayer. You know, all this stuff keeps coming up. What was it like growing up with somebody who was a working actor, but maybe wasn't hugely famous? Well, he wasn't hugely famous in England. He was, you know, character famous, I guess, in, in an actor famous yeah. in in the States. But he reinvented himself in, in the early 80s with Max Hedrum. When he, he did the original yeah. Max Hedrum in England and then came out to do it here. And it changed everything. He became an American actor, did Gunsmoke, did all... I mean, he's, he's in, you know, uh, Gettysburg, Gods and Generals. He narrates Gettysburg. I mean, he just recreated himself. That's right, completely. that's right. But... I just remember being at school and my dad would be driving what was called a minicab, sort of like a, a sort of gypsy cab sort of thing as you have in oh, New yeah. York. And, you know, working every now and then. And the kid would come up to me when I was like nine or 10 and go, just saw your dad get killed on TV last night. So, I mean, his basic thing was getting beaten up, playing a villain or, uh, or doing these. And it's just, it's an odd thing, but it, it made me vow never to be an actor, which I, I followed through. Well, that was my question. Cause you didn't, you didn't immediately go into it. You went into music first, which is like, which is a lot like acting without the stability. What, um, <laughs> oh, what? Stable now. <laughs> yeah. Well, compared to fucking music compared yeah, to I, music, Mark, look me in the eye and tell me I'm yeah, wrong. No, you're, right, you're right. I mean, actually, I'm looking at about, <laughs> 15 or 20 albums that I made from the age of 16 onwards I have on my walls. I was on bands on Rough Trade when I was like 15, 16 years old. I was in the TV personalities. I was in a lot of right, those right. bands. You, that people like. you worked with Robin Hitchcock? Yeah, I played with Robin when I was 17. So it was between... Um, it was between the Egyptians and then his solo stuff that he went right, sort of... Right. Like, often Dream of Trains and all that stuff. And he, he had a band called the Robin Hitchcock orchestra i think and it was just a very weird time for me. i was 17 years old i'd met him when i was 16 15 16 and i said i want to play in your band and he was like well okay then so i ended up doing so but i didn't have a great time i was i was a little outclassed by some of the players there and and through whatever personalities at the time i ended up getting sort of they wanted to fire me and instead of that he just split the band up which i thought was a rather interesting thing he didn't like the so energy. Burned the whole house down. <laughs> a small house, but he. it was part of him not wanting to be that in, you know, he'd been in the Soft Boys, which was such an incredible band that I'd seen. <clears throat> so bizarrely, when I, when I, it was time for me to go from Supernatural, we got to this weird sort of standoff where uh, Bob, the lovely Bob Singer was like, well, I don't know if we have the money to keep you on for the next year because of what we're trying to do. And I said, well, great. Well, if you take me off the poster, I'm not coming back. Just sort of let you know. I mean, I don't, I was like, basically, I don't do windows. Um, and I was kind of, I knew I was done. And it, it caused a little ruction, but not major ruction. But then it was the sort of management of it got really sort of scrappy where they tried to pretend that there was a possibility I was coming back and they knew I wasn't. And just all got, you know, because it's all about trying to preserve everybody's dignity and stuff. And it was just time for a break. And I literally didn't act for 18 months. I was so miserable from the fact that it was almost like, we're all having a party. Everybody, you know, come over here. Not so far, Shepard. You know, it was like, you know, oh, welcome boy. to that. But it was, you know, it was done. The, t the race was run. I, I, was, I discovered myself playing the same scene for six episodes at some point, going, oh, okay, this is not going well. And, you know, I, I said my goodbyes to people. And I don't think they really sort of, 
got me at that point. They thought I was uh, uncomfortable. I really wasn't uncomfortable. I was just sort of going, I can see where this is going. It's not doing anything. And they wanted to change up and they needed a change up. And, you know, anybody that can keep a show going beyond 12 years is doing pretty amazingly. So, so no, I don't, I have no animosity at all. I mean, these people were all at my wedding for God's sakes. It's like, you know, it's not like no, nice. there's grumpiness going on here. People traveled thousands of miles to, to be there. Electricians, painters, everybody came to my wedding. Um, no, but the truth was, and Robin called and goes, uh, uh, I want to go on tour. Do you want to play? So 35 years later, I went and played the Troubadour with Robin. I went and played uh, uh, Fillmore West. I played um, some just some extraordinary stuff that I'd never done. So I was actually had to go out and play yeah. what, 18 different drummers over the years had played. Because it was like, it was like let's just do the I was going to say, so, his, his, so a Robin Hitchcock set these days is sort of an amalgam of the Egyptian stuff. Does he do any soft boy stuff? Oh, yeah. We, but here's the thing is he doesn't use a band. He likes to go acoustically and plug in and, and, yeah. and get on with he thinks about it. The one time I, I saw him, he was just, it was just him by himself, yeah. You know, we went out with a full band. Tony Buchan, who had played with, I think, you know, everyone from uh, Tim Finn to producing massive records. Luther Russell, who played with uh, Black Crows and Boot, the Boot Heels and all those other bands and stuff, was suddenly assembled in a room as I arrived from a plane to France and, and went like, okay, let's go then. And Four days later, we sold out the Troubadour and made a live record. But it was it was yeah. just this wonderful, cathartic sort of return. And my dad, who had seen me play the venue in Victoria with Robin in 1982, came and saw me sell out the Troubadour with Robin in 2017, which is kind of cool. That's so, incredible. And it was great, man. At, I mean, at what point? Yeah. How could it not be? I mean, the Troubadour is such a historic place, and to play those historic songs has got to feel yeah. Uh, amazing. We also went to England. We did, we did, we did uh, BBC Radio Six Mark Riley from the Falls radio show. So we did live yeah, sure. Mark Riley session, which is fantastic. And I was just laughing the whole time. And none, believe it or not, none of this would have been possible, as strange as it sounds, without the band that's attached to Supernatural, which is uh, Rob, Rob Benedict's band, um, Loud and Swain. Yeah. And what had happened is they were playing oh. conventions. They were playing conventions. And being, the band was being used as a wedding band, basically, with these awful vocal PAs. And then one day somebody goes, you play drums? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, you want to come up and play? And they did it in public. And I was like, not really. And then I got up and played, especially on the internet. I got up and played and they were like, oh, you play? I said, well, yeah, that's how I made my living for 20 for odd years, you know? I've been playing since I was 12. And so it suddenly became like, well, let's do something. So we tried to turn it into basically Levon Helm's Saturday Night Special, where you actually have a, you know, so the last waltz was a prototype of that sort of stuff, where you just bring everybody up and do it right. So they went from these awful okay. vocal PAs to a massive touring company. So there's a 53 foot truck and, but I'm endorsed by, you know, wonderfully and beautifully and, and lovely. I'm endorsed by everyone from DW to Fender. And I always have been, I've always oh, had God. connections with the, with, with the, with these amazing companies. So DW and Zildjian and all this stuff. So, so we ended up with just all this stuff and this band who was, who was sort of on a, on a little bit of a wane was not really promoting itself because they were, they were having to do backing songs for, for actors coming on and off stage. Suddenly turns into right, a, rock, right. a rock concert on a Saturday night to 3,000 people. 
And it was like, yeah. it was insane. And this was on the convention circuit? This is, this is what we did on the, on the creation convention circuit. And it's become the high so spot cool. of what happens. And it's not karaoke, dude. We're talking about full rock shows. And then it got no, to- No, I understand, the, yeah. When you discover that Jensen can actually sing, and I mean really sing. I mean crazy, really. Oh, really? really? Yeah, so, you know, coming, coming out and you, you can play Carry On My Way With Sun live, which is fun to do, with two drummers and full gear. And it's like a massive concert to the point where Kansas came out and joined them. And, and the year I left, actually, believe it or not, it took all that time to get it together and I left. But um, Jesus. But it was so cathartic. And without Billy and, and Mike Borher and Steve Norton and, 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 uh, and Rob Benedict, I, I wouldn't be playing. And now I can go and play, and I can go stay at the Four Seasons rather than sleep in a transit van. Well, so let's talk about the transition from music into acting. You're in uh, a, a, a Boston band, School of Fish. They weren't a Boston band. He was from, he went to Brown. Josh, okay. unfortunately, died of testicular cancer very, very young. Very was, young, yeah. Yeah, very young. Was, uh, was in a duet with an actor called Andres Jones, who was in, I think, the Friday the 13th franchise. And they sang, yeah, but they yeah, were young. Yeah. I remember they took me to Raji's because it was the only place that would let him in under 21. And they were just, they were trying to put music yeah. together. And it ends up that one of them drops and we form a band with Josh and uh, Pat Benatar and, and Lita Ford's bass player, um, Donnie Nossoff and I just started doing that. And we, we kind of built that band with him. And then I went off to go be an actor and sort of left it. Well, how does that transition happen? Because they, they take... When, well, when, starts, when you know the, the acting yeah. world comes, go ahead. Yeah, hold on. The, so you've got a. You are, you asked a question. There's a, there's like a written question, that you that you had, and this actually answers your written question. It's kind of interesting. So when I was about 17 years old, and I was playing in in London, 16, 17 years old, they were making this film called Made in Britain. I had a shaved head back then, so I was like, you know, 135 pound skinhead, not a. Nazi skinhead, but I looked like a skinhead. So um, they came and found me and tried to put me in this film. And this, uh, and I was, the, I became the second choice for this movie. It was a fantastic film called Made in Britain and um, became Tim Roth's first role. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, so I had that and then, you know, I was in the Barracudas and we were recording at Rockfield or something and I get a phone call saying, can you drive? And I'm like, no. And they went, I'm glad you can drive. I'm like, what's the hell's going on here? There's this wonderful casting director called Sheila Tresize. And she said, uh, okay, I want you to go to Spain for, for a few weeks to do this film. And I went, nope, not going to do it. I've had my taste of being rejected. And I turned down the hit with Terrence Stamp. Oh, my God. Which was Tim Roth's second film, I think. <laughs> which i mean he was fantastic in and i don't know that i would have no, been able sure sure to be that at all but that was the thing and then for years as as a fully functioning alcoholic and heroin addict um i was always the thing was well i nearly did this i, I was you know sort of 25 years old with the story of a 95 year old of ah oh, well i could have done <laughs> this and i could have done that and i ended up playing in bands a lot of bands in london then ended up in in ireland 
which is a lot of family there and stuff. But I ended up in a band called Light a Big Fire. So I opened the Joshua Tree tour at Croke Park. Oh my God. Yeah, so my wife actually just got me the poster from that day, which oh, has that's the, two, it's the, the first concert of the Joshua Tree tour. So it's, you know, us and Lou Reed and, and the Dubliners and Pogues and you two, obviously. And the second day was the Pretenders was the opening act. So um, it's kind of brilliant. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, that's what I did. I was, you know, my dad's an actor. I'm, I'm a musician because I didn't want, like the rejection. And mm -hmm. so I'm in LA and they're doing this play. Uh, producers are doing this play in 100 Seat Theatre back when 100 Seat Theatre actually meant something here. You know, there was an amazing mm -hmm. year. 100 Seat Theatre ran 90 to 92 or three. It was just extraordinary because there was no places to I've heard play. that was an incredible scene. It was yeah. ridiculous. I mean, I got I got awards for this play that I did, which I didn't want to do. Um, you know, Lawrence Fishburne was doing Two Trains Running. Ed Harris was doing Scar. Charlie Hallen was doing uh, Kentucky Cycle in 100 Seat Theatre. I mean, it was insane. Oh, my God. So um, it wasn't showcase So, so how, did, how does this role come to you, though? How does this well, role dad was always in teaching. this play? Well, dad, my dad was teaching at Vincent Chase Studio, which is why they called Vincent oh, Chase. Okay. What's it, Vincent Chase? It was just, and okay. I actually used to teach a few of his classes before I was really acting or doing anything because I was sort of director mentality. And it just sort of ended up like, well, would you be interested in doing this? So I met the producers of this play. It's called Cock and Bull Story. And it was a British play about a boxer and a queer basher. And we, and we went through a couple of people and then we found this other actor, Trevor Goddard, who's also no longer with us. And the two of us did this two-hander, which sold out every night for months and months and I won drama critic circle awards and lumps of metal and stuff and it was it was just this incredible circumstance and I got they asked me do you want your dad to direct it or should we get Billy Hayes author and protagonist of Midnight Express I went let's get Billy Hayes yeah yeah so that man's also responsible for you know me actually going from into intellectualizing the concept of acting to because I think he was an Eric Morris trained actor so it was very strange um form of method acting and i'm just a very natural yeah. actor and he was uh after i'd said to him i guess you don't go to turkey on your holidays i think was my opening line to him and That's read the good. book good um yeah, yeah ingratiate yourself yeah i fight this a funny guy and you know i we did this we did this he fucking better be if you're gonna hear that <laughs> really funny guy you better have a great sense of humor <laughs> he's a new york boy i used to call him crazy Crazy. Hayes. Oh, I didn't hat. know that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and <laughs> so I'm literally, I'm on stage with my other actor doing this this uh, rehearsal, this final dress rehearsal, and I'm get doing it, and it's all very measured and clever, and it's a very dark piece. Two people on stage, one of them naked at one point, and very interesting piece to do in the '90s during the queer bashing period. So, um, yeah. and uh, he's. He, we stopped and he goes, that's great. So when are you going to do it? I'm like, what? And he goes, like, when are you actually going to do it? I mean, this is all nice theory and the rest of it, but when are you actually going to do it? And I, so I used the, the really bad James Dean defense of like, well, I can't just turn it on and off like a tap. And he said, great. So when are you going to turn it on? <laughs> and it was this challenge. And I remember the other actor, looking at the other actor, wonderful late Trevor Goddard, who, who was like, just thank God it's not me he's picking on right now. Cause we were like, 
this energy energy ball of insanity and this guy who's like five foot six just going okay that's kind of good but it's kind of not so when are you going to do this you know what it is you know how to do it do it and then we sort of started from scratch did it again and then burst into tears and was like oh my god there is something here that you can actually do and that was when i discovered i can jump off a building and occasionally when i flap my wings i can fly that's the best way of putting it well it's a real you know you mentioned the method it's it's that moment of discovering not yourself in the art but the art in yourselves you know that 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 stanislavski quote about how we we should love the art in ourselves not ourselves in the art you know and it sounds like that's what happened to you right i'm i'm probably best described as a a chekhov trained actor minorly trained actor with a little bit of meisner but but you know it's you know, the mammoth quote of Stanislavski, the Stanislavski said there were three types of actors. The first presents a ritualized and superficial version of the emotions called for by the text, i.e. lust, anger, what we used to call Captain Kirk acting before uh, Shatner grew a sense of humor and turned into a brilliant, a brilliant, fun thing. It's funny, if you go back and watch yeah. early Col- <laughs> Columbo's with him, he's having such a blast playing with Peter Falk. You can see that, oh, that, wow. that gene was already there. You know, that insane. Oh, interesting. Kirk. So he's trying to get away from Kirk. And, and yeah, he gets yeah. the fork and he gets to do that stuff. I was watching him recently with a friend of mine. And then, you know, so the first presents ritualized and, 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 and uh, uh, particular version of the emotions called for by the scene or the text. Um, comes to stage or stage ready to present that. Second type of actor called the, uh, sorry, the second type of actor prepares his own unique and individual version of the emotions called for by the scene, i.e. lust, you know, whatever. First one is lust, anger, you know, all this stuff, ritualized and superficial. Yeah. Second one is his own unique and individual version of it. There's a lot of really great actors that do that, like, you know, coloring their scenes with pencils and saying where the arc of the freaking emotion is and all this shit and my cat dies here and all well, that stuff. Well, like who? Like who, who are we talking about here for this well, second Well, with the class? greatest respect to them is there's, there's a lot of really big actors who are very successful in that second type of actor. It's not a... It's not a it's not a lowly thing. We're talking about people who are excellent as well. We're not talking about, you know, people who, who are not excellent. But I would I, I would know. imagine I would imagine, you know, the Hankses of the world and those people are more fall into more of the second style. And you know, and Spielberg okay. I think is famous for the fact that a lot of his scripts are coloured for emotion and, 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 and are directed in, in a certain way. And it takes a certain mm-hmm. type of actor to play that thing. And then there's a third type of actor called the organic actor by Stanislavski, who understands that no emotions are called for by the text, only actions. And comes to the set or stage ready to act moment to moment to invent nothing, to deny nothing. Curiously enough, the type of actor is not usually called the great actor. This is one of those great, great quotes. And it always struck yeah. me. Like, so my, my first film, having done this play and then went back to England, I got, I got sober in 90, second day of 90. And I went back and I went, right, uh, oh, you're acting now, good, about bloody time. We tried to get you to do that when you were 17 and you didn't. And go see so-and-so. And uh, I went to go see so-and-so and so-and-so said, all right, I'm doing a film about the Guildford Four. Wow. You're completely wrong for it, but you never know. And it turned into this incredible journey, which would take me 16 hours to tell you how the hell I was like the third person cast in the name of the father. It was just insane. And it was. So what is it like going from I mean, your first film role is with Daniel Day Lewis, one of the most intense actors of he really the modern isn't. world. He really he isn't. isn't. No, he's okay. not. Intense. I mean, 
I drove him crazy, which was really fun. I think I did for a little bit, but you can actually, if you ever go back and watch the film, you can see moments when I'm driving him boxy, <laughs> which are beautiful because I don't There's realize since I was much older that I'm going like, oh my God, he's listening to everything I'm doing and reacting in such a way. My, my audition, which was weird, it, 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 it's, I'll tell you the story someday. It just takes too long to tell. Um, there's so much of it, but it ends up with me and Daniel and, um, and Jim Sheridan and Patsy Pollock, the casting director, in a, a massive suite in a very, very famous hotel in, in England with a camera and Danny doesn't want to act, but he tells me a story about my character because I asked him a question, I had a problem about something. And he told me something and now and I'm in tears, I'm completely destroyed. And then Patsy goes, oh, for God's sakes, because me and Jim, I had a thick Dublin accent uh, at will, but the character I was playing was from Belfast, which is a very different thing. And I'm trying so hard yeah. to do this and it wasn't working because every time Jim talks to me, I go back into a thick Dublin accent because he's got a massively thick north side Dublin accent. And it's just chaos for a minute. And then Tessie goes, oh, for fuck's sake, Daniel, will you stop? Will you bloody work with him? And we improv for 45 minutes on a script wow. that wasn't really sort of fully realized, but we all knew the story. And he just, I watched him come out of basically, you know, Last of the Mohicans. So he was incredibly fit and bulky and he was dropping weight to get to where he wanted to wow. get to play Jerry Conlon. And I asked him some incredibly personal questions before we started about certain things. And he just talked, he told me, he was very measured about how he talked to me. And I ended up with this 45 minutes and then there was this sort of horrible pregnant pause there. And I stopped and I said, listen, mate, all testament to you as an actor or everything, but, but um, you've got to give me something. You've got to give me some, somewhere to, to be able to go here. He's like, what do you mean? He said, I said, well, you're just talking so much. Can you just back down a little bit? I just need some room to play. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were stuck. I'm like, no, I'm just waiting for you to shut up. It was like, <laughs> I got home with the job the same day and was like, I just told Academy Award winning actor to shut up because he was getting in the way of what it was I was, I was trying to do. But so, you know, it, it was a complicated circumstance and finished what we finished. They were trying to get me out of the room and I didn't know anything about the process and I didn't know how it worked. And I'd, right. I'd done everything I could do. I, I, there was nothing more in, 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 on me. I was spent. I'd been awake for 48 hours. I'd just flown there to do this and I was destroyed. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And Jim was like, okay, so how long are you here for? I'm like, you flew me here. I don't, what, what, what do you, I, I don't understand. And he's like, uh, oh, can you come back Monday? I'm like, I don't, I don't know what auditioning is. So have I got, what, I, I haven't got anything else. I have nothing else to give. And all he wanted to do is actually get me out of the room to have a conversation. Right, I didn't right. know that. So I, I went out of the room and I grabbed a bag. I hadn't even been to my mom's house. I just literally got off a plane and started this process eight hours later. I'm exhausted. And then Patsy comes out and goes, where's Martin? I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm here. And I said, look, I didn't let you down, did I? Is, is that okay? She goes, no, it was beautiful. And then Daniel came out and goes, Mark, can I have a word? I'm like, oh, no. You know, they've had a debate about this and obviously I'm not good enough to do this big boy stuff uh, and he took me into a side room and he said, listen, um, we, we know you're, you're a really good actor. I'm like, oh God. And he's like, there's he's a like, butt coming. There's an hour coming. We know you're very, very tired and, 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 but 
but we know you're absolutely perfect for this and it's yours if you want it. So you didn't I, just get the job. You got the job from Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, because he basically said, go fucking tell him because he's in pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and because of this play had been signed to APA, I mean, agents came and said, do you have an agent? I was like, do I need an agent? What's an agent? You know, the most Jesus wonderful uh, Barbara, uh, Barbara Clayman, who did Silk, Silk Stalkings back in the day, wonderful casting director, had a voice like this. <laughs> um, was uh, would have you know would have played Wallowitz's mother, <laughs> brilliant woman, brilliant woman. Came to see the play, loved the play that I did with Trevor, and was like, "Yeah, you have a sad card, honey." I'm like, oh, "Do I need a sad card?" She's like, "Oh, for God's sakes!" So she taft hardly me into Silk Stalkings. It was my, oh my first God. ever job, which was just hysterical. She so got this sort of very intense actor appearing in in this wonderful fluff which was so much fun to do but i learned a lot of things and i had such an amazing time just kind people that did kind things and and well don't you find that if you're especially when you're starting out even a, a job on a show that maybe isn't and if my listeners don't remember silk stockings was sort of an erotic detective thriller that was on usa in the 90s um <laughs> uh, and i think that's a polite way to put it right I really um, don't think it was erotic. I think Red Shoe Diaries was the erotic one. I think it was just, it was sort of gently, gently. I mean, it was just a... It, it was just so erotic it could be. It was suggestive. Yeah, but not... It, it okay. wasn't soft-core porn. There was no, 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 not at all. It couldn't have been. It was on commercial TV. But but it, but it don't you find that you, you can still get a great deal out of jobs like that? No, because I've, I've never had jobs. I'm not that guy. I, I, I started out as a as the object of attention i never understood this as a business or understood this as a job um there's an amazing interesting friend, friend of mine was doing northern exposure for years and barry corbin was his co-star and he and he was the kid was talking about um darren burrows who is um another very famous actor's son uh and he was like my career this, my career that. And, and Corbin said to him, he goes, oh, shut up. You don't have a career in actor. You work, you don't work. You get old, you look back and you go, oh, shit, look, I had a career. <laughs> I can't, I never, I never booked a job in my life. I never booked a commercial in my life. I never, I've been taken, I've been lucky enough to be taken on journeys by people. I mean, for God's sakes, Battlestar was written for me. I was, was going to ask about Battlestar specifically. Me. Okay, so why? Because it's such a great role. It's like this intergalactic Johnny Cochran who's got this, you know, <laughs> this incredible showman lawyer. Intergalactic you know? Johnny Cochran. I want that on a show. You know? <laughs> but there's a, there's a showmanship to him that is so fun. I've gotten to play a couple lawyers, but I've never gotten to actually litigate. You know, I've never okay. gotten that. I'm always like the contract guy. You know, I'm my never like the, the guy who gets argument. up and objects. My opening yeah. argument causes trial lawyers to come up to me in, in, in supermarkets and go, I wish we were allowed to do that. Because it's oh literally me getting up and going, I'd like to change my client's plea to guilty. And they're like, and, and Baltar's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, that's okay, amazing. Because you're gonna, because you're gonna do it anyway. Is the whole premise? Right. Let's just throw him out of the airlock. Let's just get rid of him, or we can have a trial. <laughs> you know, which is the because it, what it is 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 I was friends with 
the wonderful uh, Javier Grigio Markswatch, who has done such incredible work over the years. Uh, I yeah. did a couple of TV shows for him, and, and uh, there were so many, uh, um, Silvio Horta, all these people be, were, were connected in this wonderful way. And he was great friends with, um, with Narain Shankar, who was on Next Generation as a technical advisor. That's like three engineering degrees from Cornell. I mean, extraordinary man. But he, if you go through his stuff, you'll go, oh, yeah, he ran CSI for like 11 years or something. That was his big money gig. But he's a fabulous writer. He worked on Farscape. He worked on all sorts of crazy stuff. And they were part of the gang that was brought in by Ira and, and, and Stephen early on in, um, in Next Generation. These were these unsigned writers that literally got to write the next era of sci-fi, which is genius. Oh and Ron Moore yeah. was Narain's roommate, I think, at Cornell. And he goes, I think you and Ron would get on really well. And so he introduced me to Ron, and Ron and I have the absolute opposite personalities. He is the sweetest, gentlest man you will ever meet, and he's massively, he's very like Jeremy Carver, actually. He's just brilliant. He's just this brilliant thing. And he called me up one day to fix his Wi-Fi. <laughs> and he was like, can you, I got you, of course. So I got my motorcycle, I went up to his house. And I said, oh yeah, I've just got back from something, I got you something. He goes, oh, I got something for you. I said, what is it? He goes, three episodes of Battlestar, I think you'll like it. I was like, what? Then my phone blows up and I'm like, I'm in Ron's kitchen, leave me alone. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, I think this is different than anything else you've ever done. And I think you'll really like it. You know, this is a man who in casual conversation has said, there's two types of people in the world. There's those that believe that ancient Rome had a purpose and those that don't. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Absolute genius. That's a, you know, the premise for, for Battlestar in his context, which is all of this has happened before and will happen again. Oh, right. Yeah. No, you're, sure, you're, sure. you're going to literally go like, uh, I mean, he's that level of, he's, he, he, I don't like bandying the word genius about, I mean, I'm a smart boy, but my God, they make me feel. He sounds pretty genius. Yeah. They, they make me feel beautifully dumb, like in this lovely sort of romantic dumb way of going, I like you so much and you're so clever. <laughs> and <laughs> I have that. I have this amazing relationship you know john rogers they wrote they wrote leverage as uh, amy berg was writing on leverage she's a wonderful writer and she wrote i think she wrote the mark shepherd as the character oh my when god he was wearing a, a you know an adama for president t-shirt i mean it was it was mind-blowing the effect that this had and it was written for me and and the man that created who wrote the episode michelangeli wonderful writer said Ron just kept going, yeah, Mark, do more. Mark can do more. He can do more. And they created this thing in the midst of, if you know the story, obviously in the midst of the, the very depressing mausoleum time of Starbuck. And right, right. Uh, it became just this thing. And that changed the entire trajectory of everything I did. It was a piece of acting. So there's these pieces of acting amongst these wonderful, crazy things. X-Files, for God's sake. So I was on the first season of X-Files. They, weren't even, a se they yeah. weren't even a series. Peter Roth was yeah. going, like, you, yeah, 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 I liked you then. You're like, still like you now. I'm like, oh my God, you, it's like we've been doing this for a long time. But it's not a career. I don't, pilot season, I don't go out for 15 pilots. I'm the guy they call yeah. after they recast it. I'm the guy they go, I've had some wonderful things I've read on the internet and John Rogers and, and, and Javier and stuff will write stuff going, he's the guy you bring in when your second season's waning a little bit or you, you, you want to go in a slightly different direction. I'm like, great, when do, I, like get your, when do I get my name like at the top? Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, 
Like you're, you're coming in to clean up the, the mess in the back seat. <laughs> but, but most of the time, it's not the mess because some of this is just fabulous stuff. But, it, but the, right, right. it's more like Harvey Keitel and Eyes Wide Shut. It's like, what happened? Where'd he go? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but these wonderful writers, and they said, look, you know, we don't put you in pilots because studios go, oh, I don't know, we need, you know, we need a, a, a pretty boy from Iowa. And then they go, what we do is we just we write, get our series done and then we wait till episode one and then you come in as a recurring character and eventually they can't get rid of you. So it's, just, it's wonderful. That's, you know, Jeremy that's Carver, not a bad niche, yeah. Well, Jeremy Carver and I have this thing but with Doom Patrol. We have this thing which has been going on since he yeah. ran Supernatural, which is I never had a contract because I was, I, was I was a guest star for like five years. I didn't want to sign a deal and they made me sign a deal. It was literally take it or You leave. didn't want to sign a deal for a Supernatural? No. Uh, I could make more money as a guest star. I, I was, I, I did could 16, you really? God, yeah. I did 16 guest star shots in a, in a year at one point. Um, I could do what I wanted. I could go see my son play football. I was like, you know, it yeah. was a lot easier. And then yeah. it became like logistics. They were like, oh, for God's sakes, we tie him down. Otherwise, right. we get into trouble here, which is smart. It meant the boys could get out on Fridays and Mondays. That's why Beaver and I were the people that were used as utilities in that way. But I'm the only one that was made a series regular. So it was Jensen, Jared, Misha, and myself. Sorry, Jared, Jensen, Misha. So, do you, so you had to move up to Vancouver for a while, or were they down yeah, here? I mean, I just, no, we were up there, always up there. So I had a place up there, and I had a place down here, and it, it was wonderful, and I loved doing it. But then, you know, you sort of go and, you know, Doom Patrol comes up. And I used to write, I used to, write to Jeremy all the time. I was like, am I dead yet? because they were always threatening to kill people off. And then one day he wrote me the most evil response ever, which was, um, I would never kill you off, asterisk. <laughs> but with no explanation of the asterisk. I'm like, eh. No, there was no asterisk at the bottom. That's horrible. There was nothing at the bottom. Just, I would never kill you off, asterisk. He's wicked. wicked. Nightmarish. He's brilliant. Because <laughs> like, if I ask, that's what he's going to do. Um, but it was always that, it's like, it was always that thing of not knowing how long it would go, or where it would go, because I'm not number one or number two. I'm I'm number four or five or six or whatever. At best, number three. Or I kill number one and two, or try to kill number one and two. <laughs> uh, but I've been treated so beautifully by so many good writers. It's just a lovely thing, and I, and it's they're kind of oh, Mark would be interesting doing this, and you're like oh my god, what do they see in me that they think this is me or some part of me so Doctor what do they do you think do you have any ideas are you are you scared to guess i think it's because i can handle language is a lot of it yeah which is david warner in in time bandits and eddie albert in Greenacres. yeah yeah sure but you know when my when, favorite when, moment in time bandits is when uh the kid asks why is there evil yes my yeah. favorite. I think it's something to do with free will. No, it's 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 <laughs> Rafe Richardson walking off out of shot, which is not scripted. Right. Turning back in, he goes, I, I think it has something to do with free will. Just make it <laughs> It's a, my favorite line in the whole film. It's the most bizarre so thing. It is literally the line it's, I would quote to you. That's fantastic. It's absolutely that's it's, amazing. It's, because it's it's those things that create entire backstories and, and universes for characters. It's those moments, the way those things are delivered, the, the, the fact that he's in the middle of doing something and he gets asked a question, what? Uh, yeah, um, 
Yeah, I think it's something to do with free will. I mean, you want God to give that answer. It's sort of like a great. I think it has something to do with free will. It's just David it's, Warner blowing up a bunch of things and then going, "What's well, a good question?" I was doing <laughs> Wales, so much Com- great stuff in that Wales, movie. Comic Con in Wales, and David Warner walked over and he says, "Hi, I'm David Warner," and I'm like, uh, "Yes, I know." He goes, "I, I, I, I knew your father." Uh, a lot back in the I'm like you are one of my favorite actors on the face of the planet he's just oh like as though God. I wouldn't know who he is as though his relevance that's because he's not a TV actor or a, you know what I mean it's just, it's it's mind yeah. to me our heroes are very that's... fleeting now Let's talk about your Doctor Who. Mm. Um, uh, solid American accent, by the way. Thank you. Do you think people... I wasn't going to ask this, but... That you actually think means more to from... me than most anything else. That was a lovely thing to oh, say. Nice. <laughs> no, it really, it's really good. You know, really sometimes you... <laughs> you, you, you know what, what happened? Thank you. Um, it, what, what you hear sometimes when, uh, when British people do American accents is that they keep the phonetics are right, but the cadence is wrong. And there's still something incredibly British about the way they're speaking. Even though yes. if all the vowel sounds and consonants are correct, there's still something very Cambridge about everything they're saying. And I didn't hear that with you. You got the rhythms down because you've lived here a lot. Um, it's not that. So you, learn the, you learn the vernacular. If you learn the vernacular, then you know the rhythms of the vernacular, which, which will take care of, how you say past, you know, past the milk will change the way you say everything else. So once you've learned, right. and watched enough TV and, and assimilated enough and wanted to be these people, you, 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 you learn phrases. And once you've learned phrases, phrases lead you to character. Not, not words don't necessarily lead you to character. But, and, and deciding. That's exactly it, though. It's the phrasing, not the individual words. It's the, it's the actual phrasings and the, the American cadence that is is different. Also, I find that people who have a slightly northern lilt have an easier time with the American oh God, accent. Because, because half of the accents in America come from working class areas of England, Ireland, Scotland. Exactly. The further east you go. And you guys honor the R's in a way that posh down country people don't. No, and I, I'm a working class boy. My dad was, you know, really was Irish. I mean, I think he was born in London, but he was, but he's as Irish as it can be. His family's all Irish, and he was in the yeah. Royal Shakespeare Company. And you had to lose your accent, and now it's a, it's a bonus if you have a real accent that really works. It's a bonus. Yeah, but but you, no, but you he would have gotten it beaten. He would have gotten it beaten out of him to do stuff like Marat Saad and stuff, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that was. Yes, he was. He was nicknamed Paddy. He went to Rada when he was twenty-five, which was old. Yeah, because there was nice girls there. He was a terrible stand-up comic. He said. He said I was a crap stand-up comic. He'd been a merchant sailor in the Norwegian merchant navy because they didn't have rationing. He didn't speak Norwegian. Yeah. And then he came back and he tried to do, try to be a bit of a wide boy, and it didn't work. Got into Rada and somehow got into the Royal Shakespeare Company and was in Peter Brook, Trevor Nunn's Royal Shakespeare Company for years. And didn't do brilliantly. Did some amazing stuff. I mean, Maritzard on Broadway and whatever. I have actually have his scripts on my desk. I have his original Maritzard scripts on his de- on my desk. Oh my God! With yeah, his like, notes cool. and stuff in the, in the 
He didn't oh, make wow. it, up, but uh, yeah, but yeah, I get that's, I'm, 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 freaking. I hate notes. I hate. I love the Gregory Peck story. They picked up one of his scripts, and he was like, "What's this written on it?" He got all embarrassed. There was NAR and AR written in the margins. NAR. No acting required. And acting required. That's what it's said for. Yeah. Wow. Is that? I mean, I think wow. that's kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Sure. 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 It's nice to know when you're needed. Um, what is it like? It, it um, the the. Do, I was trying to think if there's an American corollary to Doctor Who, and there really isn't. You know, I'm trying to think of something that is that institutional, where, I mean, like maybe if Law and Order had been on since 1963, we and could say like. And was somewhat serialized. And, serialized. Yeah. and stuck to rules. Yeah. It's yeah. more like Hill Street I, I, than I, anything else. <laughs> I, well, yeah, but I mean, but Hill Street was only on for like seven or eight years. There's nothing in American TV that can equal the scope of, Days of, of our lives. that show and its institutionality. I guess the soaps. <laughs> I guess the soaps. It's All right. Do it. Well, Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> Jeopardy. Fuck off. Um, <laughs> um but so what is it like being part of, of such an iconic, uh, I mean, it really is an institution. And then your father plays an old version of you on the show, which is lovely. Well, that was a hysterical. wonderful moment. That was hysterical. I love it so much. Well, I got a phone call and the phone call was like, do you want to, you want to play basically James Bond in Doctor Who? I'm like, God, yes. So I got to, I'm doing Supernatural and I called up my producer and I said, can I have these dates? Because I need to go and do it. And they're like, no, this is mid-season. This is the last show before mid-season break. So the turnaround's like 14 days before the episode's finished. I need you to do that. I'm like, oh, shit. So I called up back up, and I was like, I now have to turn this down. I was miserable. Oh. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm not going to get to do this thing I want to do. Incredible role. And it's the Moffat... Um, era which is the best written the best and no disrespect to russell or anybody else but but my no, god no, sure it's a great he wrote it himself they, it's so they good built this they built this story to run and and you know neil gaiman's writing episodes and and uh, uh, mark gatiss it's a two-parter season premiere yeah, and it's like i'm sitting there going like this is incredible <clears throat> and then i called jim and jim goes i cannot let you go at, at, at that point in four weeks time i can't i've got no way out i need those days and i'm like okay so i called up and then i got a phone call from from marcus who was the producer on who at the time i didn't know and he goes what are you doing right now and i mean what do you mean right now he goes well what are you doing saturday it was like wednesday i'm like nothing why and he goes can you fly saturday we can flip the schedule and they flipped the schedule to put me in so I said, yes. Then I get a phone call from from Supernatural going, please tell us you're not getting on a plane. Oh, fuck. And I'm like, oh, shit. I forgot to ask anybody whether it was okay. To do. I got so excited there was a solution to the problem. I'm like, oh, crap. Then I get a phone call from Warner Brothers. I'm like, oh, no. And they're like, um, okay, we need to talk about some stuff. So I called Sarah Gamble, a showrunner season, I think it was season seven at the time. <clears throat> and I was like, I think I've screwed up. She goes, what have you done? So I told her. She goes, mm, it doesn't sound that bad. I'll call you back in an hour. Three hours later, the longest three hours of my entire life, I get a phone call from my sure. first AD, Johnny Mack. He's like, fine, get on a fucking plane, but if you're late, I'll kill you. So they let me do it. 
And then they said, when are you coming over to do the prosthetics? I went, prosthetics for what? They said, we're playing the older you. I'm like, why don't you just ask my dad? And they're like, would he do it? And I'm like, of course he'd do it. So I called my dad. I said, you're doing Doctor Who. He goes, oh, for God's sakes, it's not all bloody bits of cardboard and string anymore, is it? I'm like, no. And I sent him <laughs> Matt Smith's arc from Fish Fingers and Custard onwards. And he calls right, me. Right, right. He lived in Sherman Oaks. So he calls me out and he goes, oh, my God, this boy's fantastic. He goes, he's amazing. Because he'd never seen Who not be... This, He'd seen the old shitty toy. sets. With well, the no, yeah, but the, yeah. the Twilight genre between between appealing to kids and appealing to us. You know what I mean? Right. Uh-huh. And he, he goes, this boy is incredible. He's never seen anything like it in a role that's that usually traditionally boring. He'd never seen Eccleston. He'd never seen what Tennant was doing. He'd never right. seen either. And then to see Matt Smith as your first doctor that you've seen in 40 years, he's like... I right. love this boy. I think he's brilliant. So he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then he discovered he's shooting in Utah and it's non-union. Yeah. So he's like, oh. oh so he calls the union. <laughs> Hello, Morgan here. <laughs> like, okay, what do you want, Morgan? It's like, I'm doing this thing for the BBC and I don't know, I'm, it's non-union. I don't want to get into trouble. And they're like, so you want a waiver? Yeah. He's like, I don't know. What, Morgan, you want a waiver. Oh, do I? Yes, you want a waiver. Oh, great. Yeah, I want to wave. Help me help you. Yes, exactly. It's like, you, you always wanted to do this show. It is the penultimate show that you've ever wanted to be in. You're in there with your son. Everything's wonderful. Take a bloody waiver. So we go to <laughs> and, and, and BBC, in BBC, it's a big show. But BBC in Utah is what we're used to in low-budget movie making. I mean, it's really one craft service table with Wonder Bread and whatever out, you know. Right. And, and I'm laughing because I'm, I'm just happy to be there. But they, they think this is great because they're in America. And I'm going, this is the, this is the crap end of what we do. <laughs> Not be, just because there's no money, you know. Right, and they spend right. the money on helicopters and good stuff and whatever and just wonderful actors and everything else. And there's my dad. And he fell in love with, like, Alex Kingston and Matt and everybody else. He was just like, these people are so much fun to do. And it was one of those stories which I really hoped was going to come back because there was such a brilliant pre-sewing in. Matt Smith paid me the greatest compliment. He said, when you did your bigger on the inside moment, very rarely do people get to travel on the TARDIS. It makes you a companion. Yeah. So I traveled on the TARDIS and I also got to use the line Doctor Who, which is a weird, yeah, very rare thing to do because they don't like it. But they sometimes yeah. want to use it to go, Doctor. It's a little too cute and self-referential, but it works when you well, did it. I'm doing it around an alien autopsy going, Doctor Who exactly, while talking about yeah. my FBI days. And, and Moffat was just brilliant. He just, he gave me those to do, but my bigger on the inside moment is it was, it's 1969, which Moffat is fascinated by all these, you know, going to the moon, all this stuff happened in 69 right. America. And I realized that the CIA, NSA, any version thereof probably had things like, you know, and they did have things like cell phones and whatever back in those days, and they did have this stuff. So as soon as he walks right. into this TARDIS, everybody goes like, oh my God, it's bigger on the inside. Is it, Matt said, it's the greatest thing is to watch you walk in going, walk in, look, and then almost hide behind one of the stanchions because I'm just going to work out what this is and whether we have it. <laughs> that was the logic of going, okay, this doesn't make sense, but what is it? Right. And he was like, it was well, it's just, an interesting uh, moment. You, you play so many high status characters. You know, you play so many guys who are in control, who are the coolest guys in the room. Thank and you. then when you end up on the TARDIS, you're automatically knocked back on your mm-hmm. heels a little bit. 
and right. and we see a vulnerability in 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 Mark that we don't often get to see because you've got to like you know defy geometry to throw this guy off his game. <laughs> but the the, the 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 best moments in that whole that whole arc of that show is the moment he's in. So so Nixon's called me in because he's taping people, which is funny as hell. Right. He's taping because he's getting this I little girl called so It's a genius idea. Yeah. That's the reason why he taped everything. Um because he's got this little girl in a spacesuit who's calling him. Um <laughs> and then so, so the TARDIS arrives in the Oval Office and I look at it and sure. everybody pulls the guns out and I'm like, why don't we just let, listen to him talk first before we shoot? We can shoot him later. I'm like, yeah. No, you know, it's, it's this is interesting. So it was he's the guy that's going. Yeah, we can always shoot the guy. That's not the point. It's I'd like to know what the how the hell he got here. You know, and and the, the the last part of that, of course, which is my favorite part, which ended up on a T-shirt, which makes me so proud, because Moffat was worried he couldn't find an American to play a gay character, a, a, not a closeted gay character, but an institutionally closeted gay character. Right. Like, Why the hell not? And he goes, I just didn't think the sensibility was such that it would be comfortable for the for the hero type. And they gave me that. I didn't audition for that. They called me and offered me that that role. I was like, yeah. you know, this is mind blowing. And I said, why wouldn't anybody want to do this? And it's the point where two men at the urinal, it's basically me and Nixon in the Oval Office and he's going, this yeah. person you want to marry, um, black. And <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> he's like, well, we've come a long way, Mr. Delaware, you know, and I'm like, he is, <laughs> which is the point of the it's whole piece. Reveal. And it's, I have it's on a, a t-shirt, it's the picture of Stuart's face of, I think the moon is far enough. <laughs> it's like, Stuart, who, Stuart like, uh, what is it, Stuart Milligan who played Nixon? Yes, who, who, was, who was in a couple of wonderful series, actually knows, knew my dad a little bit, but a lovely actor. He was in the touring company yeah. of uh, Jersey Boys for years. He's one of those oh, wow. wonderful actors. Lived in England. He was on uh, Alan Davis's uh, show for, for a long time. He's a, but yeah, but wonderful people and made on nothing. You're literally looking at, please don't walk over the Oval Office, oval part of the carpet, because we only have one. <laughs> you know, the exact opposite of what we're used to. And it was just, it was just done with love. So I remember did you shoot, you did some stuff in Utah. Did you do the rest of it? In, they shoot in Wales, right? They shoot in Cardiff. I would literally... Cardiff. Vancouver Airport, finish finish the scene, Vancouver Airport, fly to London, get out, get in a car, be driven to Cardiff, go to work, finish work, oh my God. get back on a plane, go back to, to Vancouver and shoot. They made it happen for me, which was lovely. My dad said one time, he says, if you fell in the river, you come out with a fucking salmon in your mouth. <laughs> and the truth of it is, if you put your whole heart into something, sorry, I hate, I hate using quotes so much, but my, it just reminds me of my dad so much. My dad's favorite yeah. quote was, was the um, uh, Richard Burton quote to a young Welsh actor, which said to Mr. Burton, how do you do the acting? Which is a lovely, innocent Yeah. Quote, a young actor scared to death of this this icon, this booming voice. And go, how do you do the acting? And he took pity on him and think and said, it's easy, son. What you do is you give the other actor your whole heart. And if he doesn't give it to you back, you kick the shit out of him. And I, I believe that's the truth. And it's not about selfishness. It's about- No, on the contrary. It, it, it's about 
the play is the thing. The doing of the play is the thing. Not the play is the thing. The play, the action, the play is the thing. Yeah. All the intelligence, all the intellect that you can have, all the study you have, all the ideas you have, all the whimsy that comes to mind, which comes from having done your bloody homework and actually caring about what you're doing, which is not that hard. Right. You know, you come to the center stage ready to, ready to do stuff and then something changes. And if you're with, like I am, with Timothy Dalton, who I watched on stage with my father doing the, uh, doing the Romans, I'm okay. going, this is just joyous because his eyes are sparkling and stuff is coming. And he's like, oh, 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 do you mind? I'm like, no, play, enjoy, go. Boom, we find something. And it's been like that from day one. It's been like that for me in music, in theatre, in everything from day one. It's literally about, you have to find a way to put your whole heart into it. You never judge your genre, you never judge your character. That, but that's, these are unwritten rules. This, this doesn't even come into your mind when you're doing this. You're like, how the fuck do I say this and care? What am I, what am I talking about? What am I doing? And then just stuff comes. If you do it right, and you've got great writers and you've got these people who want you to succeed, you know, the Paddy Chayefskys of the world, the people that, that, that have right. the wit and the wisdom to, to, to observe bits of human behavior that you never thought about, but you know are right. You know it's right. The, right. Lumet, the Lumet scene when Peter Finch comes in in Network, talking about this recently, and, and, uh, and Lumet, uh, Finch comes in soaked, raincoat pajamas right and he's got a day plan right. the, the black security guard day player there and lumet's talking to the day plan as this guy's water concrete this is the most important man on television you you, he, you stand and fall by what he says and, and you know the awe right. you have for him is absolute so you 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 know and he's and he's disheveled and he's hard and he's this and he's walking him through the piece and chayeski happened to be on set and he goes said he could have a word he said of course what's up and he goes this is television he wouldn't give a fuck <laughs> and so when you see the scene, Finch comes bounding in, in trailing insanity. I mean, trailing insanity at a level yeah. that very few people have ever got. It's like to a before. fog around him. It's, it's like a cloud of nuts around him. I've come him. to make yeah. my witness. He's literally, I've come to make my witness. Yeah, right. Yes, sir, Mr. B only opens the fucking door because it's television and nobody gives a fuck. That's, That's genius to me. To have enough creative people around you that go, you know, when I went to Ron, we're doing Battlestar and we've done this whole thing with a cane and we've, we've got to the, back, the end where I'm playing with Apollo and, and I've, he's got the pen back and he thinks he's won something. And I've got this cane that I've been, you know, because I got blown up and I've got this cane and the cane's bullshit. I know the cane's bullshit. And I'm like, and Ron happened to be on set. He was never on set. He was always busy. He's very shy, man. Wonderful, man. And he was walking past in the hallway on, battle, on the Battlestar. He's just literally walking past. I'm like, Ron? He's like, yeah, I said, can I lose the cane? He goes, oh, you mean lose the cane? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yes, and walks off. <laughs> and that becomes tagged with when he goes like, uh, you know, I'm going, you got me, Apollo, well done. Because the pen, he's got the pen back. He showed me he knows what he's doing. And I'm like, great. I just walk away. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm happy. And he looks down and the cane's still there. I didn't need the Amazing. game. Amazing. Bizarrely, I walked between a bunch of extras and disappeared. It was just this bizarre thing that I happened to disappear and everyone freaked out because it literally looks like I got. 
I get so excited <laughs> by the fact that there is a there is a stall in it. Like when you're shooting it, you can't always get to it without some kind of device or at least knowing what some of the stepping stones are to get to achieve something that you think is in an area where you want to go. So yes, it does sort of plot against the spontaneity and the excellence of it. And I know I've never done three camera. I've almost had my own series a couple of times and, and I've almost been, you know, number two to some amazing comedy guys because they sometimes go like, oh my God, he might actually be really good in the comedy. It just never happens. It's, it's, weird, it's the weirdest thing. Well, you, you are, are often like the funniest thing in a drama. Yeah, that's, hold on. Is that a compliment? <laughs> is that deliberate? No, no it is. No, it, no but it's, it's like the, I, I, it, it seems limiting to call it like you do comic relief, but there's a levity and a a joie de vivre in Crowley in, in uh, the Battlestar lawyer. Uh, um, I mean, there's plenty of funny stuff going on in Dr. Who, but there's a dry wit to that character as well. And it, it, it draws you, I think with your experience in live performance, you'd crush at a, in a three camera. You'd you absolutely guys destroy you guys in so that medium. Good at it. You are so good at it. It's like it's an interesting medium because you don't understand how hard it is until you see it done poorly. Yes. And yes, it's a very uneasy mix of because you are, after all, being filmed. But you're also playing to an audience and and you can't go too big, but you also can't go too small. It's a very uh, it's it's a, a, a delicate balance. I have a weird thing here. I have a book here. Because um, we've talked about some all the things we have in common, uh, without talking about the biggest one we have in common, which is our birthday, May thirtieth. Mm -hmm. I have a book here called "The Secret Language of Birthdays," <laughs> that um, uh, assumes uh, there are certain trends, uh, certain psychological traits that are common among uh, people of a certain uh, birthday. Um, what year the is your birthday? The drive for. F uh, 71, May 30th, 1971. 64. 64. Okay, so you're a couple years older than me. Um, the drive for freedom and independence works both positively and negatively for May 30th people, but free they must be. <laughs> they may have a great deal of difficulty keeping to the same routine year after year, person who refused a contract from a hit show. Um, uh, their longing for sudden and extreme change will cause them enormous frustration if suppressed. Often May 30th people wish to be responsible, trustworthy, and dependable, but although they may try repeatedly, they have great difficulty carrying commitments through. You're smiling. I, 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 I tend to not agree, but I can see, I mean, like in, like in any statement, there's some truth in all of it, but the truth right. of the matter is I have... I have three kids. I have a 22-year-old, I have a 16-year-old, and I have a five-year-old daughter who's about to turn six. Oh, my goodness. Um, my life is large. It's wonderfully large. This country is, for many reasons, the greatest country in the world. It has massive problems and massive difficulties and, and takes a long time to, to... It's like an elephant. It takes a long time to change direction. It takes a long time to realize the greatness that it is. But as a country, as an idea, the United States is the greatest place on earth. It is truly the greatest. I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. For, for How long have you been a citizen? I've only been a citizen for a, bit, for a few years, but I, you know, I had a green card for 26 years and had a border guard going, oh, wow. why do you hate us? I'm like, what? He's like, 
Well, you, you, you got all the rights. You didn't take any of the responsibility. And so that's why I became a citizen. But um, yeah, and it's it, you know, it's my it's my duty to vote. It's my duty to do these things. It's my duty to to you know. I swore an oath. Unlike you, you got born into it. Unless you were in the military, you didn't swear an oath that I swore, which is forsaking all others and upholding the Constitution, all those wonderful things, which actually means something to me. The Bill of Rights is this extraordinary yeah. set. Of, it, it's kind of like, you know, the 12 traditions of AA, where every yeah. one existed as a result of a disaster that was going to destroy the organization. So our amendments are, are about fixing disasters. And we're so loathe traditions. Yeah, exactly. But we're so, you know, we're so loath to change because we're so afraid in such a short and fragile history that we'll lose our identity if we remember that Columbus never set foot in North America or he couldn't land on Plymouth Rock because there's nowhere to land there. So it must have been up the street a little <laughs> bit. But for some reason we're really scared that that by accepting certain things. It's like, this is the best that we knew at the time, and this is what we had at the time, and this is what we are, and we evolve. We believe we're going to lose our identity or our specialness or our status as a result as a country. And we're learning as a country that, that freedom, which for a very long time has been the freedom to say, get the fuck off my lawn, which is all it's been for a lot of people for a long time, is something mm -hmm. that's hard won and hard fought. And as a person who's lived in a socialist country, as a person who's been to every form of uh, political spectrum from, you know, uh, politics to uh, socioeconomics and seen how it works around the world, we are incredible. We are, we have possibilities that, 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 that are the things that Roddenberry talks about as, as, you know, the reasons why those things exist is because we're going, man, we have got something really special here. And we're discovering what that is again. And I think we're finding, you know, I mean, people talking about first, I've read the First Amendment and, and it's an incredible piece of, of, of writing. It's such, they're being so careful not to screw it up. It's like, God's <laughs> sakes, if you, this is all we know, but let's please at least try to make it relevant for some point in the future so we don't have to rewrite this shit. And you're kind of like, my God, you have, this, you have this sacred document that says the government can't stop you from speaking and gathering and believing and caring and being what you want to be. Not you yeah. can't stop me from calling you an asshole. It's not how it works. No, but, no, not how it works at all. But that's the thing. And I think we were talking about this recently. I've got a lot of friends of comedians and, and really interesting actors and comedians. I don't know a lot of actors. I never really have. It's just, um, it's just a weird thing. I'm, I'm quite private in that way. I'm, I don't like being a show pony in that way. You know what I'm saying? Is I don't like the energy of that a lot. And a lot of our business sure. is based on that manic energy, which is very, very hard to to, to deal with. Um, very performative. Absolutely. But I'm watching. You know, now we can't say anything. I'm not saying oh PC, or which is the old version, or oh now woke, or whatever. None, nothing to do with that. But our commentary, you know, I went back and showed my wife, who's Australian, I showed her Seven Dirty Words, the best, one of the best Carlin, yeah. Seven Dirty Words. George Carlin did. Yeah. One of the early ones, which is so good, the glint mm -hmm. in his eye. And you're literally going, our comedians are supposed to be smarter than us and shining a mirror on us. Our, our comedy writers are supposed to show the idiocy of what it is that we do and the aspirations and the stuff. I mean, for God's sakes, 
Warner Brothers was putting out cartoons with 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 beautiful human messages and about human frailty, Daffy Duck being our realizations and Bugs Bunny being our aspirations. And now we seem to be so <laughs> afraid of allowing our art to explore the dark sides of our our history or, or our circumstance. And I just hope, you know, I met Chuck Lorre a couple of times at, at, at San Diego and I just like, I mean, man, you, I said, you are extraordinary. I said, you're an extraordinarily brilliant observer of the insanity that's going on. And he goes, you know, and he was basically inferring that he has to dabble with it because he still has to produce a thing that's done. Eddie Gorodetsky, who I met, who I absolutely adore. What a human being that man is, loves jazz. These people- oh, massive music nerd. Oh, massive cool. music nerd. And massive Doom Patrol fan, which is even more fun for, for me. He's oh, like, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, so, so he's like, You've got April. We love April. April's the greatest thing that we ever had. She's the loveliest girl. And it, it just, but there's a wit there and there's an intelligence there. And it's, it's not about, excuse that. Oh, they're actually flying out of Burbank. Um, <laughs> it's not about the piss and vinegar and the agitprop and the annoyance. It's about the nuance. It's about shining a light on things that need a light shining on. And we did it with MASH and we did it with, you know, we did it with All in the Family, one of the most extraordinarily brilliantly written things. We did it with The Cosby yeah. Show. I mean, whatever happens yeah. as a result is not the point, but it's, you're talking about aspirations. Right. <laughs> you're talking about aspirational things. We did it with, you know, uh, uh, with so made Sesame Street for God's sakes. Sesame Street is an aspirational American gem. It's absolutely yeah. everybody can learn to learn to speak this language. Everyone should be allowed to learn how to count. Everybody should be empowered to understand why these things work. You know, it's like this country is fantastic and I couldn't do what I do there. I couldn't. You really don't think so? I'm not a British actor. Never have been. Interesting. I'm not. I'm just not. I bring a sensibility of, of Europeanism, I guess, colonialism to um, to it, but I don't fit. I don't fit that. They'll never put me in the crown, not until I'm 75. <laughs> but, but you understand what I'm saying? I don't fit. Patsy Pollock told me that. He says there's a massive gap between what you've done and what you can do, and they'll hate you for it. That's and here they don't hate me for it. Here they don't hate no. me. They keep giving me these. No. Well, you always you always see these guys who who get to a certain point in Britain, get their OBE, and then boom, get a house in Malibu. Because <laughs> that's all. Because we can't stand the weather. Have you ever seen that documentary? Alan, <laughs> Park? Alan Park is like, why do you make these films? He goes, look, he drives around where he's from in his Rolls Royce, going, look, it's horrible. It's raining all the fucking time. It's like coming from. <laughs> After a certain point, you get like, I need to move. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I need sunlight. Um, Mark Shepard, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a goddamn delight. Let's do another one at some point. We've got at least another chapter to do. We'll do one. We'll do one in a while. Oh, at least. We should. We should. At uh, least. At and least you know what? You know what I want guest. to do? No you question. I want to do? I'll tell you what I want to do. Oh. I want to interview you. Oh, goodness. I definitely want to interview you, certainly about music and your love of music. And, and, but I definitely want to interview you. We should do one of those. But set, let's have you guys set, right. set this up because you have to do one. You, you can't be, 
you can't be aloof and above it all. You have to be subjective. Oh, that's very sweet. That's very sweet. You're the first person to uh, to offer that. Uh, make a note of this. Uh, I'm going to have my producers make a note of that. Perhaps for like our 100th episode or something, we'll. Uh, I would. I would uh, you will conduct the. Uh, I'm just going to tell you. I love your work. I love the way you approach work. I love your punk oh. sensibility. I love the fact that there's a part of you which will always be 17 years old. Yeah, yes, quite quite a bit. I'm afraid. You know what yeah. I'm saying? You know what I'm may or may not be getting. No, I totally know what you're saying. As I plummet into my fifties, I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but without that, you wouldn't be you, which is what makes you so wonderfully endearing and fascinating. I, that means a great deal. It's, we have a nice little mutual admiration society going on here. It's pretty lovely. That's yeah. We will definitely have you back, Mark. Shepard. I'm going. I'm going to go. I'm going to go write some questions for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> And that is an episode wrap on Mark Shepard. You can find Mark Shepard on the social medias at Real Mark Shepard over on Instagram and at Mark underscore Shepard on Twitter. And you can also find him on HBO Max where he appears regularly on Doom Patrol. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm -hmm.